0: Jesus says things like, if you love me and you want to follow me, you have to hate your father and mother. I go, oh, I I don't know how that works. If Jesus says, uh, not if, but when Jesus says to the poor woman who in one episode puts these two penniless copper coins in the offering, and Jesus says, that's the biggest gift all day, I go, I sometimes don't get him. And today, we look at this phrase that Jesus says, basically, happy are the sad, because they'll get comfort and joy. And I just have to wonder and admit sometimes that Jesus really confuses me. And today we look at this, this phrase, happy are the sad, and we just have to go, do we really believe it? I mean, you might recognize it as Matthew 5, chapter 4, or chapter 5, verse 4, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this idea of mourning and sorrow is probably most clearly seen um, in this concert, that, or this benefit that's happened uh, for this 10-year anniversary of, of just October 10th, 10 years ago there were these three boys that were driving from their little town outside of Lakeville, driving into town in Lakeville, and they had picked up some things for their mom on a Sunday afternoon after church, and they were three teenage boys, and they called their mom and said, you know, we're driving home, mom, we'll see you in about a half hour, And, and the mom says, I didn't even realize that two hours had gone by and I hadn't heard from the boys until these headlights came in, not just one set, but two sets, It was later in the afternoon, and all of a sudden it was two police cars who came to say that their three boys, or two of their three boys, died instantly, and their third boy was in the hospital because they were hit by a drunk driver who was in trouble with the law several times, who was talking on a cell phone, who was driving at reckless speeds, and who was reaching for a CD on the floor. Now, these two parents say not a day goes by that it's not hard. But the hope we have in Jesus continues to give us hope, continues to help us believe that something better is waiting for us and that our boys experience true life, even though it was a short life. The fact that each one of them knew Jesus brings us hope, brings us comfort, and brings us joy in the midst of sorrow. Now, I don't know if I would have that same thought. I would love to believe that I, I do. But the reality is, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for those who have sorrow. This is what Jesus' kingdom is like. And this family can attest to this. But I think it's safe for us to question that. I think it's realistic for us to question that. Maybe not question the truth of Jesus saying, but questioning this idea, this principle, this value that Jesus lifts up. See, we just started this series called The Upside of Down as we look at what living in the kingdom is like, this kingdom that Jesus describes. Marcy, I'm so surprised, I'm going to throw you under the bus, I'm so surprised that you didn't talk about being in the happiest kingdom on earth last week, you know, the magic kingdom. This place of joy, this, if you've ever been to a place called Disneyland or Disney World, you'll notice there's never trash on the ground. Like, one time I thought I saw somebody drop something, and like, before it hit the ground, all of a sudden someone came out of nowhere, like a bush or something, and swept it into this little tray, and then was gone behind another bush. It's, it's magical. And they say, it's the happiest place on earth. And Jesus does not lift up happiness in the sense of like the magic kingdom, but he does say, happy are those who, or blessed are those who, or the people who are great in this kingdom are those who. This is what Jesus describes in this kingdom. And he says it as if it's available now, not just in the future. See, the Jews had this belief that someday God would reign and rule over the heavens and the earth, and in that day, Revelation describes it in Revelation 21, that Jesus will wipe away every tear, that there will be no sadness, no pain, no death, and everyone will have joy, and everyone will be comforted. And the Jews believed that someday that would happen. And their prophet said, um, Isaiah 61 most clearly, says that, that the Messiah, the Savior, would come, and when he comes, he would proclaim freedom for the captives, he would proclaim hope for those that are brokenhearted, that he would bind them up, that he would lift them up, and that he would comfort those who mourn. So here we have now not just the faraway belief, but also the reality that someday Messiah would come, and when he comes, that those who mourn would have comfort today. So, as we look at this kingdom, we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that? I mean, why would Jesus say that mourning is the way to comfort and joy? I might add that really, truly, mourning is the only way to true comfort. So, as we open up again to Matthew chapter five, we see this guy Matthew making, uh, really setting Jesus up as this, as this powerful prophet that's supposed to look a lot like Moses. He puts them on a mountain, he has them reinterpret the law, and he's in the mountains because he's kind of bringing a new kingdom, a new regime, because rebels who say that they're the Messiah, which are false, but these rebels, they would go and hide in the mountains, and they would say, when I'm king, or when I'm the leader, this is what it will be like. Jesus came as this powerful prophet, who then says in this chapter of Matthew 5, He says, these are the values of the kingdom that I'm going to bring. This is what my kingdom is going to be like. You're great if you're poor or poor in spirit. You're great if you mourn. And he goes through the list. And then he says, I'm also bringing a way to implement these values, a pattern, a program, if you will, to see these outcomes come into my kingdom. And then he goes through and walks through these. And so in our first week, last week, I asked you to think about the results that you want your life to have. What do you want the end results of your life to be? So if you weren't here last week, then, you know, you'll have to play catch up. So it's a pretty, not too hard of a question. What do you want the results of your life to be? When you think about the end of your life, and you think about the things that people will say or the the legacy that you'll leave, what are some of those things? I'll just be honest and share a few of mine, at least entering university. So these are quite a while ago. But it's the list that pretty quickly comes back to my mind. I mean, first of all, I wanted to have a comfortable career. Like I was going to double major in math and, s- and civil engineering, specializing in structures, minor in sales, and Get my professional engineering license in four or five years, so by 20, like 27, and then be in sales by 35, and then be in management by, you know, in my 40s, and then retire early, like p- preferably in my 50s. So not only would I have the comfortable career, but I'd also have the caring family, the attractive wife, the smute, the cute, that's smart and cute together, smute. Ah, I made a new word today. I would, ha- I would be able to make new words. That was one, no, that was another. I'd have a comfortable lifestyle, like I'd have a big house, a smoking fast car, maybe belong to a golf league, or maybe even a an average country club. I'd get to stay in shape by running marathons, maybe doing some half Ironmans, maybe in a full Ironman, and I'd get to spend time at the lake on the weekends, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't bring comfort to others, because I'd invite them to the lake sometimes. I'd be involved in church sometimes, I'd, I'd give money away, and and maybe I'd even get to speak encouragement to people. This was my list. Now, I'm sure you have some thoughts on my list. But before you judge my list, I would say that there's probably a few things that are on my list that are on most people's lists. I mean, if you were to make some general categories, I wanted a large dose of success and comfort with just a dash of charity and benevolence. Now again, what do you want the results of your life to be? Jesus says, you're blessed if you grieve and mourn. You'll find comfort and joy. I think there are five ways that the world says that we can find comfort if comfort is actually one of the things that that you want as a result of your life. Comfort meaning encouragement, comfort meaning strength, comfort meaning an, an aid in time of sadness, but also comfort meaning joy. I think the kingdom of the world says, and then we've got Jesus' kingdom over here who says, blessed are you if you're sad, if you're sorrowful, if you grieve. Over here we've got the kingdom of the world that says that those who find comfort, or the way you find comfort is that you avoid it. I'm literally walking past a soccer game th- recently, and it's probably these first or second grade girls. They're, they're, they're quite cute with their ponytails kind of bouncing, and they're just happy-go-lucky dashing around the field. And they're not clumping. They're actually passing the ball. It's kind of fun to watch. And these two moms, they're watching their daughters pretty intently. And, and the one turns to the other. And there's just a few minutes left I can see. And, and they say, gosh, I hope they score so they can tie it up. And the other one says, yeah, it'd be so sad to lose on your last game of the season. You know, nobody should have to lose on the last game of the season. We have to admit, there's a piece of truth there that says, if we win, we avoid comfort a lot. And we like to win. And the kingdom of the world would say, yes, we should win sometimes. Another way that I think avoiding comfort or avoiding sorrow comes out is in this news story that was uh, kind of blew up this week with a St. Paul woman who blogged about her experience with the police department. I'm not sure if you heard about this one, but she had a break-in in in her house, and so she called the police, and the police were pretty nonchalant about the whole experience. This obviously happens a lot. At least that's what she was getting. Her intent was coming through. And so she was asking if they were going to do an investigation, and the police officer didn't have this amazing stellar response. And so she said, well, you know, I I'm I'm hoping you're going to do some things, but what can I do, you know, to protect myself? What can I do to make sure this doesn't happen again? And he said, you should move to the suburbs. We got to admit there's a piece of that that's true. That we can avoid some sorrow if we live in the suburbs. And the kingdom of the world would say that's the way you find comfort, by avoiding it. The kingdom of the world would also say, I think, that we can find comfort in religion. And religion is really humanity's attempt to bring assurance to ourselves that we're acceptable to God. Okay, if that was too many big words. Humanity's attempt to bring assurance to ourselves that, that we're acceptable to God. W- the things that we do to help us feel better that we're right with God. Sometimes that's giving money away, sometimes that's coming to church, sometimes that's comparing ourselves to someone that's lower than us, like, I'm not as bad as that person, so I must be okay. And, and there's a piece of that, that that I think we have to admit is true, a piece. And, and sometimes we look around at religious institutions, especially those that use guilt and shame and sadness and sorrow, And we go, Well, that just doesn't seem right. Why do they have to do that? And it hints at this thing that Jesus is talking about that I think I'm going to come back to. Third way that the kingdom of the world tells us that we can find comfort is in food. In fact, 10 years ago, the American Academy of Science produced an article called Chronic Stress and Obesity. A new view of comfort food. Showing how... Comfort food consumption is often triggered by emotional stress. And emotional stress, let's just be honest, emotional stress is just a sister to grief and sorrow. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know what, if it's just one pint of Ben and Jerry's occasionally, and it makes me feel better, is it really that bad? I would say again, I think there's a fraction of truth in all of these things. The kingdom of the world would also say, that we can find comfort not just in food, not just in, in religion or in avoiding it, but also in clothes, all right? So who doesn't think that a, a man who dresses sharp performs better? I mean, the suit can often make the man. Or a woman who says that, you know, it's quite competitive in the world. When I walk into a room, I compare myself with all the other people in the room, and if the clothes help give me an advantage, if they make me feel a little bit better, is there anything wrong with it if I'm not hurting anyone? I mean, literally, they've done studies that attractive people, they get biased preference at interviews. So is there really any harm in trying to dress your best? And I would say there's a fraction of truth in this. And then finally, I think the kingdom of the world says, the absolute best way that you can find comfort is in surrounding yourself in it. This would be called living in luxury. Now, my mind goes to Beverly Hills, goes kind of to Hollywood or Orange County, sees the opulent homes, sees the, the actress, actors that go down the runway in their outfits, and, and it looks like that's a lot of comfort. And I think there's, a fra- again, a fraction of truth that says, if you surround yourself in comfort, you'll avoid sorrow. And I believe that Jesus eliminates all five of these things in one single story that completely reinforces, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's in Luke chapter 16, if you want to turn there. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Someone will literally bring you one. It's pretty cool. And if you need to take it home because you don't have one, it's yours. So Luke chapter 16, there's a story that he tells. story's a parable in the Bible, is often called it. And he's giving a picture of the kingdom and the response to the kingdom. And very quickly, we see in this story... Someone who lives in luxury. Verse 19 says, of chapter 16. He might say once upon a time for us. But he says there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linens and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate laid a beggar. But let's just stop there. He is described as a rich man. Someone who has, uh, and this word rich would be, he has more possessions than he knows what to do with. We have this in Lego in our house. There there are so many pieces of Lego around that we literally don't know what to do with them. Well he has that in everything. He says he's well dressed. Now, royalty has purple, because purple is made from this rare shellfish that um, is quite expensive to make, and it says fine linen, which would be these like Egyptian silks or cottons. These would be the most expensive items that, that you can find. The kings of the world dressed like this man, or to put it the other way, this man dressed like the kings of the world and the queen's of the world he is well fed it says he lived in luxury if you do a little study on that it's like he's throwing these extravagant parties every day there's a story that Jesus tells just a couple more before this that's about a son who goes away and he he squanders his dad's money he spends it all and then he comes back saying you know I've sinned against you god Uh, or I've sinned against you father and I'm not worthy to be your son but just make me your servant and the dad says let's have a party let's kill the calf let's spend a year's wages celebrating because my son who is dead has now returned it's the same language in this story imagine being able to be that well fed I have a couple friends who are chefs and they cook for us sometimes and it is amazing so just think of that every day Think of being able to invite all kinds of neighbors over to your house because you're just throwing another house party. This man is well fed. And later we find out in the story that he calls Abraham, who would be like the chief figure in the Jewish faith, Abraham and Moses, they're kind of the two top dogs, and he calls Abraham father. And this is a very, very, Jewish way or this very, very subtle way of saying that, that they're in. The, the Jews that walked around in Jesus' day would say, I'm a child of Abraham, so of course I'm going to heaven. Of course I'm with God. He's got four out of the five ways that the kingdom of the world would say you find comfort and avoid sorrow. The only one we haven't hit is void which we'll see in a second. But this man has all these things right in front of him. Now, I want you to think about how much you identify with the rich man. Now, there are some of us, I won't look around because I don't want to have you think that I think this of you, but I would say there are some of us who really do live in luxury. We have nice clothes. We get to eat really good food. We get to live in immaculate homes. And we have to admit that. Now, there are some of us that don't dress quite as nice. We don't eat quite as well. So we might not live in quite as much luxury. So maybe we'd say, you know, let's, I, I don't really identify with this person. This is too far. Well, if we compared ourselves to the guy we're about to hear about, who would gladly gladly trade places with any one of us, and I don't even know all your stories, but I don't have to because I've read this next guy's story, we are very well off. See, the next verse we hear, at the gate, which is like the driveway, the porch, at the gate lay a beggar named Lazarus. He was covered in sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here we have a guy who's named. I didn't know if you caught the the fact that the rich man isn't named, but this man is named. He's named Lazarus, and I think Jesus picks the name Lazarus, you know, possibly because it's pretty common, but I think probably because Lazarus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eleazar. And Eleazar was... Abraham's most trusted servant. He was the one who was going to get all of Abraham's inheritance unless he had a son. And Eleazar means God helps or the one whom God helps. Think about that. Here's a man in Jesus' story who's laying at a gate, who's a beggar. Same word that we looked at last week, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who literally has nothing. Nothing. And, and he's starving of hunger. One, one of the commentators says that, that these bread, these scrapes, these scraps of food that fell from the master's table, this was this idea that, that the rich, they didn't often have a lot of paper napkins because they didn't have a lot of paper mills at the time. So they would use pieces of bread to wipe the other food off their hands. They would use that bread as napkins and then they'd toss it on the ground. This is what he was longing to eat. And it says that, that not only that, he's got this intense desire for this thing that will not satisfy him. He can't get it. Not only that, he lives in this poor health It says he's covered in sores. These would be sores described um, as raised bumps or boils that would be all over his body. These are the things that if you've read the Old Testament or you've read the story of this guy named Job or Job, he is covered in these things. And when he's covered in these things, it says that he scrapes them with a piece of pottery because they bleed and then they scab over, but then they bleed again and then they scab over. Does it sound gross? Because it is. And he curses the day of his birth. This is intense pain. So he's starving, he's got nothing, he's in intense pain. This does not sound like comfort. This is what Jesus wants his hearers to understand, that he's completely, completely, completely miserable. The only medical treatment Lazarus is actually getting is when wild dogs, not like household pets, not, oh, come here, Muffin. We have a little named Muffin. She comes and, you know, licks our ankle and then bites ankles of other people. Um, these are wild dogs, which would mean that when they're licking his sores, he's ritually and religiously unclean, which means he can't go see the priest. He can't come into the religious community. He can't find relational comfort, spiritual comfort, or physical comfort. He is literally an outcast. And yet, Jesus puts him at the gate of the rich man. What Jesus wants his hearers to understand is that it would be very, very normal for anyone and everyone to scorn and ignore him. Now imagine a homeless beggar who carries a nasty virus, not too hard with Ebola, you know, going around the news, carries a nasty virus and and has a few wild dogs next to him. And he lays at the end of your driveway if you live in a house. And he's always there. If you live in an apartment, he is in the doorway, the entryway of the commons area. And he sits where like there's a stack of papers that no one's ever going to read and phone books that no one's ever going to pick up. And he's just there. If you have a a townhome, then, then he's by that garage entrance that you always pass when you come in and out. He's right by yours. Jesus wants us to understand that the rich man literally has to pass by this person every day. And we see in the story that the rich man does nothing. He chooses not to see him. So I'm in Chicago last summer, and we're walking down Michigan Avenue, and as we're walking down, I see a woman who's in plain clothes. They're pretty decent clothes, and she's in a hijab, uh, and she's got her face mostly covered, and and she's got a small bucket that she's sitting on, and she's got a little sign that she's holding up that's about the size of a piece of paper, but it's a little thicker. And um, and she's kind of resting it against her forehead and looking down, and, and it says, um, I, you know, I can't really tell if she's 20 or if she's 40. I'm just entering that phase of life. And 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 the sign says, "I lost my husband and my job, and I have no family in America except for my four children at home that I need to feed. Please help." I had to tell you, my heart just went out to her, and my mind raced as to where I could find cash because I don't carry cash. To, so I can get this mother the food she needs for her kids, or whatever she needs, and I was determined to help her. So the next day, we're walking down Michigan Avenue, and we're on the other side of the street, and I know that in a block, I need to move over so that I can see her, and um, and I see a different woman wearing approximately the same thing, and I see her sitting on approximately the same kind of bucket, and I see her holding an approximate, like, not approximate, pretty much the exact same size of sign, with almost the exact same lettering, different person, and I read it, and it's the exact same words. I got to tell you, my heart did not go out. My mind didn't race as to how I was going to give her money. And when I walked across the street and half a block down and saw the same woman with the same sign sitting in the same way, I didn't give her any money. I went, you know, it's people like this that that really wreck the system of trying to help others. And I got this little feeling as I read this week, wow, I'm a whole lot like the rich man. Who do you identify with in this story? Jesus has a group of religious teachers around him. If you read the verses before this, he's made quite a strong accusation against them, saying, if you disregard the law, like, heaven and earth could pass away before before the law is going to just go away. And then he says this strange phrase, like, if a woman divorces her husband, she commits adultery, and if a man marries another woman, he commits adultery. And then he tells this story. It's like he holds up this one thing that in society was was happening all around him and the, and the religious leaders were kind of ignoring it and the religious leaders were kind of ignoring people like Lazarus and then he tells this story see Lazarus is filled with sorrow and yet if Lazarus means one whom God's help one whom God helps it means that in some way Lazarus must have been depending on God and so in the story, we see that the time came, in verse 22, for the beggar to die, and the angels carried him away. Notice how it doesn't say he was buried. He was probably just cast out and thrown away. And the time came for the rich man to die, and he was buried. And he was in Hades, where he was in torment. We should stop and go, hmm, because he's a son of Abraham. He's a child of Abraham. He is, he is in and he's in agony. This doesn't make sense to us. And in Hades, he was in torment, and he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Or maybe in your translation it says, in his bosom, which would mean this, this intimacy or this connection or this closeness, this comfort, this paradise. And, and he says, he calls out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip his tip of his finger in the water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And Abraham replies, Son, remember in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus received bad things. They just happened. We can't always explain why. Even though the kingdom of Jesus is here and now in the present, we only see parts of it. We still see brokenness in the world, and if we're honest, we still see brokenness in us. And it just happens. And we're not really given a total reason as to why the rich man ends up where he does. But he ends up there. And Jesus says, Now there's a reversal. Lazarus is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides, there's a great chasm, a great distance between us and so that, that you can't come over here and no, no one else can go from here and cross over here. Interesting thing about that was that the beggar sat at the gate of the rich man's house and he passed over him every day. There was no chasm that was firmly set in place like the text says. But there was a chasm in the rich man's mind. See, riches and food and, and clothing, these are all not bad things. It's when those riches and food and clothing and surrounding ourselves in comfort gives us, um, actually makes it impossible for us to see the brokenness right in front of us, to have no response, to ignore. Those things. This is what Jesus is attacking. This is what he's subtly pointing out to them. And so he says, besides, there's this thing. I can't, I can't even give you this one little satisfaction like the morsels. And he goes, I, I get it, I get it. I beg you, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. And Jesus says, they have Moses and the prophets. That was like saying, they have the Bible. They have the law and the prophets. They have all the writings. Let them listen to them. Oh no, Father Abraham, if, if only someone comes back from the dead, then they'll repent. This repent word is this, this religious word that means to change their heart and change their mind that results in a changed thought, changed attitude, and changed actions. It's like the rich man is saying, Oh my gosh, now I understand. And Jesus leaves it with a cliffhanger. See, this kind of story was told all the time in, religious, in the, in the, the ant, uh, ancient world. It was told that the, rich, the reversal of the rich and the poor, except at the end of the story, when the person would ask to send a message back to their rich family, it was always granted. That's where Jesus flips the story, and if we would know the stories, if we would know the culture of the day, we would catch that, but we don't, and that's okay, so that's why we're walking through it. They would go, wait, 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 wait. You're not going to send a message? No, no. Even if someone rises from the dead, they won't repent. If he won't listen to Moses and the prophets or the Bible, the law and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. As we wrap up here, what, what's the point of this? This, is, this story is this cliffhanger to say, will people change their ways before it's too late? Why is mourning the only way to true comfort? Because it's only with the pain of change becoming greater than the pain of staying the same that we change. Follow me? Only when the pain of change becomes greater than the pain of staying the same do we change. And, and sorrow brings us that pain to help us change. Because Jesus wants us to have comfort. And those who see the word, those who hear the Bible, those who realize, oh my goodness, there's no way that I can earn my way to heaven. There's no way that I can surround myself in enough luxury. There's no way I can eat enough food. There's no way I can put enough clothes on. There's no way I can satisfy this desire to find comfort because it can only be found in God's unconditional love. The only way is for me to turn and ask. And yet, As the stories say, James 4 in particular, and most poignantly, if we come near to God, he will come near to us. If we wash our hands as sinners, if we purify our hearts as people who go back and forth, if we grieve and mourn and wail, if we change our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom, This will humble us. This isn't for us to walk around as people who are just decrepit, people who are downcast, people who are sad. This is people that just understand that God is here and we're not. It says if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will lift us up. Isaiah says it as well. God is the high and lofty who lives in eternity and he's the holy one that lives in this high and holy place. But he also lives... With those who are humble, those who are are broken. And he says, I restore the crushed spirit of the humble. I revive courage to those with repentant hearts. This is this is the good news. This is the way thing that Jesus wants for us to see that the only way to, to true comfort is this sorrow, because there's always a Lazarus where we live. He might not be at the end of your driveway. But she might be on the periphery of your relationships. He might be someone who's outside of your work. They're in every major metro area. They're in every rural area. And they're increasingly in the suburbs. And it gives us pause to say, is there good news for the poor? Is there good news for those who are in sorrow? And I would say yes if I could sit with Colleen and Nathan Backstrom, I think they would say, it's hard and we're often sorrowful. But we have hope because God's resurrection happened through Jesus and he promises a reversal and I know that we'll get comfort in the end and maybe we'll get comfort now. And we've seen it here 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 and so many more people have come to know who Jesus is because of these deaths. So to God be the glory. When you look at your life, what do you want the results to be? And are you living by the values that Jesus puts in this, this kingdom to see those results? As we come to the communion table today, um, the worship band's gonna come up. I just invite you to sit for, for a few minutes. And ask the Holy Spirit, what does it mean for me to mourn? What might I need to change to have life? And I would say to have joy.